Well, the title of our sermon this morning is Children of Light. Um, As Paul says that at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And as we try to wrap our heads around what that means, it's helpful for us to remember that Ephesians is, is basically the length of a sermon, not a very long sermon. You could read through the whole thing in about 15 or 20 minutes. Um, many of you are wishing that I preach sermons of that length more frequently. But it, it's basically Paul's sermon, and many people believe that it's a sermon on Isaiah. Remember, this is Paul's Bible. These are the scriptures. Uh, and Isaiah is very important in shaping the themes and ideas that Paul wants to communicate. So Paul is telling us here that we are that new creation light, which is now shining into the world for the first time. And, and he's drawing on themes of Isaiah from, to explain this to us. And again, as we did last week, I want to focus on our closing verses today, verse 14. And this hymn, this song that he quotes, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That is coming, I believe, mostly from Isaiah, as we'll see. But this idea that we are children of light because we reflect the light of Christ. The light from the glory of God's face that is shining upon us. And we reflect that glory in the world. This new heavenly reality, like the light of dawn, is what must, therefore, shine out from the saints uh, in the church. And that's what calls us to holiness and to reflect that glory in the world. So, this is God's holy word. We'll be reading Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And this can be found on page 978 of your pew Bible. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or who is covetousness, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Join me now in our prayer for illumination printed in our bulletins. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Our uh, outline is printed in the bulletin. The first point, 
And I want to start by framing this up in terms of the the background in the prophet Isaiah that we are liberated exiles living in the light of the risen Christ. Then, second point is to contrast and the contrast that Paul develops here between the way of light and the way of darkness. And third and finally, uh, we need to understand this warning, a severe warning uh, against partnering with darkness. Well, our title, Children of Light, reflects the New Testament truth that we have been born again. We are new creatures. At one time you were darkness, Paul writes, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. It's that pattern of guilt, grace, gratitude. God has created us, new creation. Therefore, in thankfulness, we live transformed lives. Now, it is not unusual for the New Testament to speak of believers as children. And I see that there are many children here with us today. Uh, Very wee little babies, slightly older children. Um, Children who are called to grow in their faith. Indeed, Paul has done so just in the previous chapter. He says, uh, may we, uh, uh, God has given us apostles, prophets, uh, to equip the saints until we attain to the unity of the faith to mature manhood. Um, to the maturity of the man, Jesus Christ, to the measure of the stature of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So we are called to, to grow up, to mature, to progress in our faith. And in our text today, Paul is applying this metaphor a little bit differently. He's calling us not to strive for maturity, but he's calling us to act in the way that is fitting or proper to our new circumstance, to the new reality. We are children who, as it were, have been adopted. A friend of mine a few years ago adopted uh, a child who suffered from some physical handicaps from China. And this child had been raised for a couple of years in very difficult conditions in an orphanage in China. Virtually no stimulation, no language development. It was really tragic. Well, this child, beginning with a 15-hour plane ride home, had to learn how to live as a child of a loving Heavenly Father. Earthly Father, rather, but also Heavenly Father, who is called into a Christian household. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here. There's, There's a new birth. You have a new reality. You've been adopted. Another expression that perhaps some of the parents in this room or some of the children have heard their parents say, act your age. Act your age. Behave like you know you should. Do what you need to do. Sometimes the eldest, and I was the youngest, so this this rarely was said to me, but sometimes the eldest child in a large family is told, hey, you know the routine here, right? You act your age. Lead the way. Show your siblings how to act. You're able to do it. You can do it. You know how to do it. Paul says, walk as children of light. Your new creation. Live like it. Baptism is a new birth. There's a very similar warning in 1 Corinthians 6 against unrighteous behavior. And after listing various vices, Paul says, And such were some of you. But, he points to their baptism. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Such were some of you. He's talking to the most corrupt, broken down, abusive church that we find in the pages of the New Testament. The church in Corinth. He says, you're not that anymore. Stop falling back into those old habits. Grow up. Act your age. 
And in our text today, this admonition comes with a warning. If you never grow up, if you never desire to grow up, something is wrong. Something's wrong. So I want to set this warning and this instruction from Paul. Remember, so he's talking here about the sins of the world, the darkness of the world that the children of God have left behind. Remember, this is just a few moments in a sermon. This isn't a sermon on sexual sin. This isn't a sermon on pornography. We can take a deep dive on many of these forms of darkness that do, that do drag us down in this world, right? But notice that Paul doesn't dedicate a whole sermon to that. He's focused on the new creation. He's focused on the new reality of who we are for a vision of living a transformed life. And so this concluding quote, I think, is very important in in the context of this exhortation here. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Some think further that Paul wrote this sermon as a sermon to be used in the context of a baptism service. You can imagine how compelling that would be, right? Awake, rise out of the water, live your new life. Paul introduces these lines with a formula that he used earlier in chapter 4 when he quoted Psalm 68. Therefore, it says. That's why in our English Bibles, these are in quotations, right? And um, if you have a Bible with cross-references, they probably include a number of texts. Isaiah 51, 52, 60, 26. And the reason there are all these different texts is because it's drawn from a, a bunch of different places. You can't find these exact words in the Old Testament. And so some people have thought that Paul is actually quoting like a hymn that the church used to sing at these baptismal rites. Uh, But we don't have any such hymns, and there's no reason to really go there. In fact, I think that this is a really important learning opportunity for us to understand how Paul reads the Bible. This quote is something of a key to our passage and a key to understanding Paul's instructions and his warnings for us today. Remember, this is the only Bible Paul has. (laughs) The law, the prophets, the writings of the Old Testament. Paul's message for the church is shaped heavily by the Old Testament, which he had probably basically memorized by this point in his life. And if we understand the inspiration for his imagery of darkness and light here, we will have a greater sense of the work that the Holy Spirit is doing today in us, calling us to be children of light. Briefly, I believe the inspired Paul is not quoting a single text of Isaiah, but is quoting from a theme, as it were, that's developed in chapter 26, in chapter 58 and 59 and 60. He isn't mistaken. He isn't misquoting the Old Testament. Rather, he's inspired. He's acting as an interpreter, an apostolic interpreter, applying the word of God to God's people, to the church, applying the Old Testament to the New Testament uh, circumstances. And this is important for us because, again, Paul is showing us how to read the Bible. Frankly, we're not very good at it. We're not very good at understanding how the New Testament, or the Old Testament rather, finds its fulfillment in Christ. The anchor of this quote was read this morning by Elder Chris Robbins. uh, Is Isaiah chapter 60. And you heard some of the echoes there. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. You see that reflected image of God's glory shining upon us. And nations shall come to your light. Nations will see Christ in you. Will see the Lord in his people and be drawn to it. And kings to the brightness of your rising. The context and the background for Isaiah's language of of new birth and restoration here is the exile. 
Um, I'm doing, uh, and I've never done it before, so I don't get any credit for this. It shows like I'm age 50 years old. I'm finally reading through the Bible in a year, right? And I'm going through the minor prophets right now. But I just, earlier this month, waded through Isaiah and Jeremiah. They're big, long books. And they're full of bad news. They're full of really horrible news. The prophets are God's prosecuting attorneys. We have one of those in the congregation. (laughs) They're taking the covenant which the people had entered into with God. And they're saying, you violated it here and here and here. This is what you said you would do. And these were the, these were the sanctions. These were the warnings that God said would come upon you when you did this and this and this. And I've warned you and I've been patient and I've warned you again and I've been patient, I've been patient, I've been patient, but you're out of here. In chapter 58, Isaiah says, declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob their sins. They might be crying out, where's God now? Why are we being cast off, dragged off into exile? Why are our, you know, these horrible crimes of warfare that we're seeing playing out today in the Middle East? Why are these horrible crimes being inflicted on us? What did we do? Isaiah says, you sinned. This is what God said would happen. The people were being punished for their sins. And if they would rectify their ways, the Lord would restore them. But alas, they just kept on sinning. In chapter 59, Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear you, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. It's like you were sitting on the tree branch, and you pulled out a saw, and you started sawing, and you cut yourself off the tree branch, and you fell, and you thought, Why did I fall? Because you separated yourself from God. As a result of their sins, the Lord had judged them by casting them into darkness. The law was teaching Israel the sinfulness of their sin and the consequences for it. The wages of sin is death. And so Isaiah writes, therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in the gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon, as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. This is what's behind Paul's teaching in chapter 2. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You see, he's preaching on Isaiah. God's people were stumbling about in the dark like blind men. There was no one to lead them, no one to save them. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth is stumbled in the public squares. And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him. There was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. There was no priest to pray for them. There was no prophet to speak the truth. Well, there were prophets. Isaiah, they weren't listening, right? And what did the Lord do? Did he just turn his back on his promises? No. He realized that he himself had to come and save his people. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Tell me where you've heard these words before. And he put on righteousness as a breastplate and he put on a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun in the east. And a redeemer will come out from Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. That's the language of the armor of God, right? That Paul will talk about in Ephesians 6. It comes from Isaiah. 
Because the Lord himself became a great warrior and redeemer to deliver his people. But it is the Redeemer's glory and the light that is shined upon God's people. And when the Redeemer comes, the Lord delivers His people from exile. And so Isaiah is saying, after you've paid all your sins, after your warfare is open, and it's all done because God has poured out all His wrath, God will deliver you. And He'll make a smooth highway. There'll be an interstate through the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist, the last prophet, said, And this is the context for this blessed promise of restoration. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you. Darkness everywhere but God's people. And his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. That's why earlier on he used this language of Psalm 68. The Lord is this great warrior showering gifts in his victory march and parade upon his people. Not only will the Lord defeat Israel's enemies and restore them to integrity as his people in Zion, worshiping him, praising him. But his victory will be so brilliant. The restoration, the beautification. That closing line we read this morning. You are beautiful. That beautification So full that the nations will come streaming in. They will be attracted by the beauty of the Lord's glory reflected in his people. And here's the amazing thing. With the coming of Christ in the fullness of time, Paul has realized that all of this hundreds of years of ancient history, this happened four or five hundred years ago, was all about Jesus. It was all about us. God moved nations, armies, to teach us the gospel. The heavenly Jerusalem that is now breaking into our midst. The light that is shining in us. The new creation. This is what Peter says. The Spirit was speaking to you about Christ. Concerning this salvation. First Peter. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them. Jesus sent his Spirit back into the prophets to talk about what he was going to do. What time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. The prophets were serving you, dear Christian, in the things that they have now been announced to you through those apostles who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So how does this background help us understand Paul's message for us today? We are uh, in this text. We are in this story. It's about us. We are those Israelites who were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were stumbling about in darkness, walking about like blind people in the light of day. At one time we were darkness, Paul says, but now you are light. The Redeemer has come and has shined his light upon us. We are light in the Lord Jesus Christ, so we must walk according to this new light. We must walk as children of light. And Paul is calling us in exile, in the wilderness, in Babylon, to leave it behind. To follow our Redeemer home on the path, the straight path through the wilderness. To live in his light, in his glory. And the fruit of this light is found in all that is good and right and true. And this glory in the church, this beauty of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven will draw Gentiles and nations 
to their king. It wouldn't make sense, it doesn't make sense, does it? To go back and live in the darkness? To continue walking in the impure ways, the bad habits you picked up in Babylon? It wouldn't go back to... It wouldn't make sense to go back and sin like the same sins that caused you to be driven into exile in the first place when the wrath of God came upon the sons of disobedience? It wouldn't make sense to prefer exile, would it? Being away from home, away from country, away from job, away from loved ones, away from peace. It wouldn't make sense to prefer war, would it? To make a U-turn while you're on that highway? The way has been opened. The light is dawn. We've seen the light. Wake up. <laughs> Wake up, people. And this is exactly what Paul says in Romans 13 in a similar passage. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. See that armor again. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You see, it's always the same for Paul. The day is dawn. The light is here. Don't go back. And that really brings us to our second main point. That background, I think makes so much more sense of why he has to call God's people to live as God's people. And he develops this distinction between the way of light and the way of darkness, two different ways of going. This sense of being redeemed from the curse of exile is is why Paul is focusing on how the church must now separate itself from the darkness of the world. In the last few verses we looked at last week, he was talking about love and truth as the the bond, the unity within the church. So he's talking about relations within the church. And now he spends time talking about our relation to the world, which we have left. He's called us to walk in love as Christ loved us. And now he names some of the things that we must no longer do. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. As is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Note, Paul is addressing the church as holy ones. That's who he wrote the letter to, to the saints in Ephesus. But he addresses them as saints. We've been made holy by Christ's work. And there's a proper way for holy people to act and live in the world. Act your age. Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. They're out of place. Our mouths are to be used for giving thanks. James says it would be wrong for the same mouth that blesses the Lord to offer cursings. Our mouths are given to us for gratitude for God's saving work. We are God's beloved children. And we've now been awakened. Christ's light is shining on us. We're children of light because we reflect his risen glory. In chapter 2, Paul wrote... You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is ruling the world and all those who sign up uh, for service in his forces. Now he reminds the church that God's wrath is coming on those same sons of disobedience for doing acts like these. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 
Therefore, don't partner with them. Don't behave that way anymore. Don't re-engage in what drove you into exile in the first place. We'll see this in a moment. But the empty words are those who say, God doesn't care. God doesn't see. God doesn't know. Live however you want. In his sermon on this text, Calvin makes a great point that we often overlook. We are um, gravely threatened, Calvin says, daily by our own sin. The greatest threat to our faith isn't out there. It's in here. The old man. As Americans, we share in the modern conceit that we're all basically good people, right? We just want to do the right thing. We're all good. But we aren't that bad. But Calvin points out that Paul is concerned to point out the very many sins that we must flee and distance ourselves from precisely because we are so gravely tempted by them. He points out that we live in a dangerous world. War, crime, carjackings, Disaster, fire, flood. You all take care you know, that your house doesn't burn down. You lock the deadbolt at night. But he writes, or he preaches, there are a hundred times more dangers within us than we see around us. Think about that. Some of you people have maybe chosen not to live in certain neighborhoods because they're not very safe. Maybe some of you have made decisions uh, about where you work because of ways in that you could be threatened. More security, right? Calvin says there are a hundred times more dangers within us than we see around us. The devil has many wiles to deceive us and take note of how many vices there are to make war against us. For as I have already said, Calvin continues, by nature, we are not only inclined to a single evil, but to so great a number that even they who are most virtuous shall find themselves surprised at every turn. You haven't yet begun to consider how great your sin is. The secular version of this is the unconscious mind. Uh, Our consciousness is like an iceberg. Uh, Most of it is underneath the water. What we know of ourself is just the little tip above the water. One uh, uh, psychologist that I've listened to, Paul Conti, um, I think he has a a podcast. I heard him as a guest on, on another podcast. He talks about the self that we understand to be Navigating this world with is is sitting upon this biological supercomputer <laughs> of impulses, defense mechanisms, different things. And we know as Christians, brothers and sisters, that that supercomputer has a lot of malware in it, right? It's really whacked out. We do a lot of crazy things. The way we've been shaped and formed by the sinful world in which we live, by the curse, the original sin that we were born with. Calvin calls the mind a factory of idols. Idolatry is at every turn. Calvin says this mind, or rather Augustine says this mind is curved in on itself. You're having a conversation with your wife. Your mind's curved in on itself. You're talking to your son or daughter. Your mind's curved in on itself. You go to work, you talk to your boss, your mind's curved in on itself. We need the grace of the Spirit every day. We need to repent daily. And Calvin says, this is why repentance is a thing. If sin wasn't a real threat, daily repentance wouldn't be important. But it is. If we were basically good, as we so often think ourselves to be, don't we, brothers and sisters? Then it would be sufficient for for Paul just to say, walk in love. And we'd get it. Oh, walk in love. Yeah, sure, I'll do that. But we don't. And so Calvin points out that Paul has to enumerate some of these sins to show us The things that we have to flee because they tempt us. We don't have 
a properly oriented GPS. We don't have the proper navigation. The world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly making war against us, probing, looking for a weakness, looking for the right side, the left side, finding a spot. You think of the, the spiritual armor that Paul will talk about in chapter 6. It's like we're in a boxing match, you know? And if you ever watch a boxing movie, I know nothing about boxing, right? But you're in a boxing match and, and you have to guard, right? Like something could come. You could get a jab. You could get a hook. It's constant. Satan doesn't want us to be blessed with the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul singles out here a triad, which he repeats twice. Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. These are really generalities. He's not going into great detail. He's not preaching, again, a 45-minute sermon on sexual immorality. This same triad will appear later when Paul will say that everyone who is marked by sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So he's, he's generalizing about the threats around us. And it is marked as the opposite of a, a separate triad, a triad of the fruit of light. The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. As children of light, we bear the fruit of goodness and righteousness and truth. God has given us those things. He has blessed us with those things in his Holy Spirit. And he says that we are able to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, this might sound like a contradiction. I just said that our, our supercomputers are kind of whacked out, right? Our orientation isn't proper. But now Paul is saying, a part of this light that has shined into our minds as new creatures is that we can discern what is pleasing to God. Now, he's not saying do what feels right. He's not saying you can do whatever you want, right? The very referent is hold up what you're going to do by God's standard. And now, because of the new birth, for the first time we realize that we need to look outside ourselves. Our ESV translation says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I think that's not the best translation. I don't think he's saying try this or make an effort. He's saying because you're children of light, you are able to discern. I think it's better to see here Paul telling us that as a consequence of this new creation, we've been enlightened. We're no longer those blind people stumbling in the dark. Before you act, before you have a thought, a word, or a deed, ask yourself, what would be pleasing to the Lord? That's obedience to Paul's command here. Try, or rather discern, what is pleasing to the Lord. The deceiver, Satan, would prefer you think not of God's pleasure <laughs> as a check upon your behavior. But as new creatures, we know that we need to, and we are able to do so. Do we have a perfect moral compass? No. But we can and may ask this question. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The same verb there. You may discern by testing. So run this test. Make it a part of your daily procedure. God, am I pleasing you? Am I glorifying you? Am I bringing you honor? And Romans 12 and Paul in Ephesians makes it absolutely clear. What's the order of the day? Transformation. Not staying the same. More and more becoming a new creature. Acting your age. Repentance. Humility. Test your thoughts and deeds against God's will. His word, his commands. And you will be able to discern it. You will. And this is also... A function. Remember, Paul in this letter is talking about the church. Test it with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Draw upon the fellowship of the saints. Grow in holiness with one another. This is not a solo mission. 
Paul wants us to see the mortal threat that the ways of the world pose to us. Sin and vice are all about us. The patterns of the old man are written deep in our hearts, in our DNA, as it were. I thought of the analogy, not perfect analogy, but the analogy of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know what they say. You're a recovering alcoholic, right? You're never not an alcoholic. Even if you're sober for 10 years, 20 years, you're still a recovering alcoholic. Brothers and sisters, you and I are recovering sinners. We're still sinners. God has us on the path to recovery. And by His Spirit, by that one true higher power, our Lord Jesus Christ, we can and may walk as children of light. The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, but we have the same armor that our Lord Jesus Christ wore when he defeated him at the cross. We now have that same armor. And this brings us to my third point, which is this warning against partnering with darkness. As Paul is calling us to continue to put off the works of darkness to make no provision for them, he issues a warning. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, warnings such as this in the New Testament uh, can lead to confusion or doubt. They can lead us to doubt the assurance of our salvation. How can I know Uh, The doctrine of election, that I am elect, that I'm saved in Christ, and yet be subject to warnings like this, that I might not inherit the kingdom of God. Which is it, dear pastor? Uh, My New Testament professor, Steve Baugh, is very helpful in his commentary, so I'm going to follow his advice. He says, there are two real big questions here. Does this warning relate to true believers? Does this warning relate to believers? Can we lose our salvation and be disinherited, as it were? It's the first question. But the second question that's equally as important that we don't often give a lot of attention to is what is the kingdom? What is this inheritance that he's talking about? And where is it established? So it's really important to understand what Paul means when he says you may not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul clearly teaches that Christ is ruling now at the right hand of God. He says that in chapter 1. All things are under his feet. He's ruling as the head of the church. And furthermore, we are citizens of this heavenly kingdom now. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. However, the consummation of that kingdom comes about at Christ's second coming. There is a time in the future when death will be destroyed forever. The kingdom of God proper in fullness is only fully entered into, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, when our flesh and blood, when the perishable puts on imperishability, We only fully step into the kingdom of God and inherit it when we are risen, when we have resurrection bodies. It is an imperishable kingdom and only imperishable creatures can inherit. So there's a real difference between what we have now, this foretaste, we are heirs about to inherit, and the full inheritance. There's a real difference between what we already possess and what we do not yet possess. And understanding that the character of this coming kingdom that we now taste as as a covenantally administered kingdom, we now possess, is key to understanding Paul's warnings here. Kingdom blessings are administered to all those who profess faith in Christ. If you make a credible profession of faith, 
We interview you here in this church, our elders and pastors, and we affirm that you are a member of the kingdom of God. The elect profess this credible faith because they have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. They are guaranteed. And they may indeed possess full assurance as a result of that. Those who look to Christ have nothing to worry about, sincerely. Yet the church is broader than just the elect. And this is the key point. This covenantly administered community of believers anticipating the coming of the kingdom of God includes some hypocrites. Not this one here. (laughs) The global one includes some hypocrites. Jesus says there are sheep and goats. Both the sheep and the goats on the last day say, Lord, Lord. Right? He gives the parable of the dragnet. It's a mixed multitude. The wheat and the tares. Now Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 5 about some sinners who need to be cast out of the church. And what does he say? The one who bears the name of a brother. The one who falsely bears the name of a brother. Yet openly practices sin. He says we can have no longer any partnership with them. He says you can't go out from the world because otherwise you wouldn't talk to anyone in the world. I'm not talking about separating from the world. But you can't tolerate in your midst the one who openly practices sin. John, the Apostle John says that some have gone out from us, but they were never of us. You see, not the elect, but some who professed a certain kind of faith. Like Esau, some have a claim on the covenant. A real genuine claim. They might come to the sacrament. And yet they sell this covenant blessing for a mess of pottage. These are the goats who cry out, Lord, Lord. So our deeds, to a certain extent, do reveal the genuineness of our profession of faith. Are we really repentant of our sins? Do we examine ourselves when we come to the supper? Progress is slow. And brothers and sisters, I'll tell you right now, as a leader in Christ's church, one of the things we pray about and worry about a lot is when you have to discern someone who might be a goat in the church, a sinner who's just bearing the name of Christ hypocritically, it's painfully difficult. And we only make that judgment with great caution. And patience. It takes a long time to be excommunicated from the church of Jesus Christ. But we do excommunicate people who make it clear that they no longer call in the name of Christ. And we do so slowly because the work of the Spirit is powerful. We always must presume the best and work for the growth in grace. People can wander off and come back and wander off and come back. And we pray that the Spirit is still working. Even those who have been excommunicated from this congregation, we still pray that we're wrong. And that the Spirit brings them back. We pray for them. In a healthy church, apostasy will be rare. It will be an extreme case. We never give up on God's promises. Never. And this is why Paul, in addressing the church, as messed up as Corinth, concluded on this positive note. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. But we need to be careful of the empty words, the lie of the deceiver. And what are these empty words that Paul is talking about? That God won't punish sin. And that those who profess Christ don't have to worry about tolerating sin in their hearts or in their lives. That we can just indulge our flesh. It doesn't matter. I'm saved by the gospel, right? Like Paul says, his critics say in Romans 6, What, should I go on sinning that grace may abound? No, heavens no. This isn't true. 
May the Spirit protect us from such lies. Paul recognizes that our faith is fragile. We must avail ourselves of the means of grace. We must look to all the helps and the aids that God provides for us in the fellowship of his church. The wrath of God is coming. And those who believe in Christ are protected from it. But if you think you don't need to therefore put to death the old man, turn away from the darkness and stop partnering with it, you're sadly mistaken. And your faith may not stand firm to the end. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Remember how Christ loved the church. This is what Paul will write in just a moment. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. He saved you for that holiness. You are on the road to that holiness. This meal is nourishment, confirmation that you remain on that path, that you are headed for glory and for the light, a full day that's coming after the dawn. Let's pray. Dear Lord, send us your Holy Spirit in renewed measure. Give us strength with this bread of heaven. Feed us for the way which we are on. Nourish us. Lord, we acknowledge the power of the evil one. We acknowledge the spiritual warfare for which we must equip ourselves with your truth and your gospel and your righteousness, your salvation. We acknowledge that we are weak sinners saved by grace alone and seal that promise to us with bread and wine this day that we might go forth and shine with the reflected glory of our Lord and draw all men to him as we lift high the cross. Amen.